It's Friday, August 15th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So, I figured out Vladimir Putin's game. Expansion of Russia? Sure, yeah, that's part of his game. Restoration of the old Soviet empire? Not as such, but yes, I'm sure the guy wept when the empire went away. But I think I found the motivation. Here's what really nails this guy. Villain. He wants to be a villain. Part Bond villain. Accent? Yup. Secure lair? Check. He's got one of those. What about a cadre of henchmen? Here he is at one of his wide-ranging press conferences slash worst tent at Bonnaroo. He's asked, hey, how about bringing back the Cossacks? There are militia units not only in that region. There are militia units emerging in other countries. So what Cossacks do, in my view, is very positive, but they need to act in full compliance with legislation and contact with law enforcement agencies. My view is that Cossacks oftentimes are more efficient than law enforcement agencies. So yeah, yeah, Cossacks, lairs, plots, that's the Bond villain part. But there's another kind of villain going on as well. You know those trucks, the ones that left Russia, went to Ukraine, said to be transporting humanitarian aid? But what kinds of trucks were they? According to Courtney Weaver, who's traveling with the convoy, they're painted white. But well, here she is on NPR this morning. In reality, they've been tarped over with white tarp or painted white. And then when they started to open up the vehicles, you can see the green on the inside. So these are standard Russian military trucks. That's right. You lift them up and reveal their true nature. In other words, just like the plastic masks of a Scooby-Doo villain. Putin aspires to be a Scooby-Doo villain. And he'd have gotten away with it, too. If it weren't for you meddling, actually, he might very well get away with it. Senator Bob Corker has been calling for shipments of the mystery machine to the Eastern Theater. Lindsey Graham agrees. So while wearing a white sweater and orange cravat, he criticized Putin. When told of Putin's expansionist ambitions, John McCain was heard to mutter, Ruh-roh. On the show today, it's an Antan twig. We correct the corrections and set the record slightly less askew. Megan Abbott, author of The Fever, is here to discuss her account of mass hysteria among teenage girls. But first, to Ferguson, Missouri, where the tear gas is cleared, but questions still linger. The tensions in Ferguson, Missouri, seem to be dissipating. The Missouri Highway Patrol has replaced St. Louis County officers as the major police presence. No arrests were made today or yesterday. The heavy anti-mine trucks there have been replaced with patrol cars. Cops in camo and riot gear have been replaced by cops in blue. And tear gas as a means of dispersing spectators, that's been replaced by the chief of the highway patrol walking arm in arm with protesters, listening to them. I even saw a picture of a black protester taking a photo with his arm around the Caucasian St. Louis police chief, Sam Dotson. Well, Jamel Bowie, who covers issues of politics and race for us at Slate, has just returned from Ferguson. It was a very different scene when he was there. Hello, Jamel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell me what you saw while you were in Ferguson. I saw peaceful protests. I saw those protests get dispersed by heavily armed police officers, police officers on top of armored cars, scanning crowds with sniper rifles, training sites on sniper rifles. I, I, I believe that one of those rifles was trained on me momentarily. You've covered protests before, I take it. Yeah. How was this different from those uh, other times you were there? I think what makes this different is the clear 
I don't know, I guess it's the clear contempt police had for the demonstrators. Uh, there are a couple reports, multiple reports of police saying to demonstrators, you know, get back you animals. Um, I, I think that one of the reasons why things escalated so quickly, certainly on the side of the police, but I think more so with the demonstrators who got themselves very angry at the police. It's mm-hmm. just when you show up to a group of people in armored cars and with heavy weapons, people are going to react, you know, very poorly. There's no other reaction to have, really. If a protest is a statement, can you think of a protest where the statement was, you know, so easily and apparently conveyed as this one was? It it just became so apparent that the things they were protesting were, you know, things that needed to be protested if you looked at how the police reacted. The only other protests I can even think of that are that clear and unambiguous are civil rights protests and and sort of the response to those protests showing very clearly um, what needed to change. I mean, this is why people were drawing analogies to Selma and other civil rights protests. The the visuals were very similar. I mean, when you have cops walking dogs uh, that are barking at mostly black protesters, it's certainly going to evoke images of uh, a much uglier time in our history. You know, I also think, obviously, there was uh, there was death. There were two deaths after Michael Brown was killed. There was uh, an, another death, and the situation around that is still unclear if someone was threatening an officer. However, you know, would that all of our problems were so damn easy to correct? It just seems that the governor, perhaps backed by uh, President Obama's words, made a couple of extremely obvious fixes, and the situation went away like that. Right. Well, I still think there are underlying issues that need to be resolved. For example, the Ferguson police has still not been forthcoming with information and instead have have taken this odd approach of doing as much as they can to antagonize demonstrators and antagonize sort of supporters of the Brown family. For example, today, the SD released the name of the police officer. They did not release any of the autopsy results. And then they released sort of information saying that Brown, Michael Brown, was a suspect in a robbery, which a, few, a couple hours later, the Ferguson police chief clarified to say that when Brown was stopped, it wasn't because he was a suspect. He was stopped independent of that. And so to release information saying he was a suspect in a robbery strikes people as an attempt to smear Brown to make it seem like the officer's conduct was more acceptable. And that that is the kind of choice that department's making that doesn't flame tensions that insofar that tensions were lessened last night this is the kind of thing that um, heats them back up again and of course the other underlying thing is the racial politics of the area and ferguson is two-thirds black only has one city council person out of six who is african-american the mayor isn't but i would think in the wake of this not only should every single black person in ferguson uh vote but anyone who was struck by what they saw on TV, you know, should go down to either Ferguson or areas like it and conduct voter registration drives. I think that's right. I talked to a couple community leaders um, while I was there who all said that they hope that this would become the catalyst for broader action, including getting people registered to vote, getting people to the polls, uh, getting more representation on the city council, getting more representation on the police force. Um, the thing about the St. Louis area is that many of these small municipalities are mostly black, and many of them have very few black leadership bases. And so the general hope is that this can provide a spark 
to begin to change that. Right. And if black people were just to register and turn out for elections, it is not the case, as in so many other areas, where redistricting has suppressed the black vote. I mean, from what I've looked at, that there is no way to have a majority city council, no matter how you draw the districts in Ferguson, if the black residents of Ferguson would just register and show up to vote. That's right. And quite a few community leaders said to me that part of the problem is that people don't come out to vote or that people aren't registered in part because of their transient nature. And it also does strike me, you know, in the civil rights era, the NAACP, other groups would seek out to find sort of the best representative, right? Rosa Parks was seen as the perfect person to embody the cause. And in a way, and this wasn't planned at all, obviously, again, acknowledging the tragic death of Michael Brown, but you in many ways couldn't find a better example of the underlying problems you're talking about than Ferguson. I think that's exactly right. Ferguson sort of sits at the intersection of a whole uh, group of issues. I mean, just the the murder or the killing aside, Brown uh, lived in a low-income place that was essentially segregated from wealth and jobs in the area. If you wanted to, if, say, Target opened up a new store in a more affluent part of the St. Louis area, you would have to drive 20 or 30 minutes to get to it to even apply for a job. He attended a school that was failing, lived in an area where there was a heavy police presence, where the second largest source of city revenue was fees from police stops and and such. And so, you know, even if he had never been shot, he and Ferguson in the area, I think, would kind of stand as an example of the stark racial disparities in our society. And the fact that he was shot and killed highlights the other element, which is, you know, police treatment, police brutality, policing, um, and how oftentimes in these sorts of communities, the police aren't so much there to protect citizens as they are to contain them from other more affluent and, and frankly, whiter citizens. Do you think there's a chance that Ferguson could become a catalyst for change, either on issues that aren't the ones we've been talking about, like the militarization of police force, or just other places like Ferguson, these these suburbs and exurbs that were once white that in the last decade or so have turned majority black but are still underrepresented? Might there be a chance for you know those places to change based on what the country saw here in Ferguson? I don't know. It would take a real sustained effort to get that kind of broader change going. You know, one of the, and uh, I guess a less optimistic example is Sanford, Florida, and what happened to it in the wake of the Trayvon Martin killing. Nothing really much changed there. And so for Ferguson, for places like Ferguson, we have to hope that uh, leaders and participants um, come away with this eager to begin the process of change and and ready to suffer setbacks. Um, This is not going to be a linear movement, and it may take many years before we get the sort of satisfactory change that uh, we want. Jamel Bowie is a Slate staff writer covering politics, policy, and race. Just returned from Ferguson, Missouri. Thank you so much, Jamel. Thank you for having me. Now, in class, all these thoughts thudding around, it was hard for Deanie to concentrate, and even harder given the rocking in Lise's chair, her whole desk vibrating. Lise, Mrs. Chambers called out, you're bothering everyone else. 
It's happening, it's happening, came a low snarl from Lisa's delicate pink mouth. Uh, her hands flying up, she grabbed her throat, her body jolting to one side. Then, in one swoop, as if one of the football players had taken his meaty forearm and hurled it, her desk overturned, clattering to the floor. And with it, Lise, her head twisting, slamming into the tiles, her bright red face turned up, mouth teeming with froth. Lise, sighed Mrs. Chambers, too far in front to see. What is your problem? So begins the new novel, The Fever, by Megan Abbott. Who's right here? Hey, Megan. Oh, so glad to be here. Did you get into this because you were fascinated by the phenomena of uh, mass hysteria? Or was mass hysteria something that came later after you wanted to write about some other kind of topic? I think I'd always want to do something in the mass hysteria realm. <laughs> I was a kid, I was that one, you know, that girl who loved to read about Salem witch trials yeah. and 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 just to get spooked in general. And I remember my parents taking me to Salem to the museum and uh, the live reenactments they would do and nightmares for a decade after that. Um, so I think, but you know, Salem's kind of been done. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of- A guy I named mean, Arthur Miller hit that yeah, pretty hard. Once yeah. he does, you know, yeah. it's kind of done, you know. So, uh, so I was just sort of waiting for another other sort of story to take shape that would allow me to work through some of that stuff, but without all the familiar touchstones. So there are always these outbreaks. There was one in Tanzania. There was one in Portugal. I mean, it happens all the time. And of course, well, the more up-to-date a society is, the better tools they have to kind of eliminate everything. And then they gradually, eventually say, well, I guess this is one of those mass hysterias. And this case in Leroy, New York, followed that pattern. Right, exactly. I mean, they're more common than I think we would think. I think this case particularly intrigued people because it, it was domestic and it was uh, the sort of all-American cheerleader uh, girls who were afflicted and they were they were very photogenic and I you know they were on television and and so the, it's I think it sort of captured the public imagination in ways that other cases might sort of just trickle to the corners of our consciousness and it certainly drew my attention for the same reason it felt very dramatic it felt and you know the 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 pointing fingers and the conspiracy theorists and Aaron Brockovich you know flying yeah. in yeah. Uh, it, it sort of felt like a classic American tale in certain ways. What about setting a book in a high school? This is a subculture. Have you done this one? Have you done that before? I had a little bit. My last book was about dangerous cheerleaders. So, so yeah. high school, I think it's the most noir terrain that we have today. Uh, you know, it's uh, extreme emotions. It's uh, everyone is on display. The stakes are really high. The hormones are on the loose. You know, so it, this feels like the perfect place for something like this. And noir because of repression, because of, you know, the whole point of noir is that you can't really be too explicit. And even though we talk about like the pornification of the culture. I mean, the way high schools really live by most people is a little like as if the Hayes Code were in effect. That's really great. I never thought about it that way, but it's quite true because everything is furtive. There are so many secrets. Everyone's trying to control their reputation and so sort of hiding their darkest desires, of course. And it's all about, you know, presenting yourself with having a tough front. You yeah. Know? Now explain what it looks like when one of these seizures, when the fever takes hold of one of your characters. What do people say? Yeah, it's very violent, almost like an extreme epileptic seizure uh, where the girls are sort of, you know, their jaws start turning, almost exorcism-like. They are thrown to the floor. They're sort of thrashing thrashing around. So it is almost like you could imagine another time it it being mistaken for for possession or witchcraft um, because it is so extreme um, and so visible and therefore so thrilling to see in this weird way. You can't look away from something like that. 
So the explanations for this, you know, no one knows what it is. And among the explanations that people talk about are this new vaccine, the HPV vaccine, and fracking, Mm -hmm. right? And so I was thinking that all of the things, you know, there's a lot of anxiety. It's all about we kind of project our anxieties or the characters in the book project their anxieties onto the fever. And so that's why fracking is a really good one. It's not just a current thing that's going on in the world that we're worried about. It's not the war in Iraq. That's at least explainable. Mm -hmm. But fracking, like sexuality or like this immunization, you can't really see it. We're told things about it, but we don't really know. We have to take experts' words on it. And it's a term, actually, we often all use, and very few people actually yeah. know what it is. <laughs> it's sort of in it's in the air, It's uh, and everyone's sort of talking about it, and everyone, therefore, it becomes, again, a blank screen on which we can sort of hoist a lot of our general anxieties about what, you know, the environment, what we've done, the damage we have done, you know, which parents, I think, are particularly susceptible to because they're always being told now that they're, that they're poisoning their children, they're putting their children at risk, you know, the environment, there's arsenic in the water, you know, the, your, these vaccines are yeah. poison. The so. bottles, like the yeah. very, you know, the very nurturing that you give babies, the bottles uh, have a certain chemical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So there's no fighting it. We, we're sort of, we're dooming our children. And, and to tap into that parental anxiety can, can be really dangerous. It's a powder keg. As much as this book is about sex and as much as this book is about um, different kinds of fears that we want. It's also very much about technology. I mean, barely two pages ever go by without some form of technology there. And everyone knows about the fever. It's not like the Salem witch trials. You know, did you hear? I saw Goody, whoever with the devil. And, you know, they heard about other girls doing it. I mean, everyone's seeing it happen. And it does seem that you're saying, maybe you're not even saying it, but the impression I got was that technology is itself is a form of fever. Right. No, I think yes, absolutely. I mean, when something goes viral, I mean, that's where the, the language itself comes yes. from. Yes. And, it, and it's not that any of these feelings are new or the phenomena are new, but certainly the transmi- means of transmission and how quickly it can occur are new. I mean, I remember in high school passing a note and you know, if you could spread a rumor over the course of a day or two, it might go through the whole school. But with, with cell phones, with, with social media, it can happen in an instant and you can have visual proof of something or seeming visual proof. So you've written a few op-ed pieces uh, because there's phenomena that is popping up that is directly in line with your book. I mean, Slender Man, that mm-hmm. killing up yeah. in Wisconsin. Yes. Yeah. When you first heard about that, you didn't have to make a leap to say, wow, this is exactly what I've been writing about. No. In yeah. fact, many people on Twitter and so forth kept hurling the story yeah. at me uh, <laughs> because it's, the, the timing of it seemed so appropriate. And and again, it's a you know everyone wanted to blame technology in that case, too, rather than mental illness, which is obviously, you know, yeah. to, to, to most of us, so if you think about it for a few minutes, is but everyone to say that it was this website that had somehow caused it all. So these issues... I think they keep recurring. But the fact that there was two girls in that case, and one has been adjudicated to be mentally ill, but it also speaks to the idea of contagion. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Those sort of dangerous friendships that girls yeah. and boys that right. at that age can have where the they're... The Columbine killers had a similar dynamic. Indeed, yeah. right, where they're, they they sort of build each other's reality, and that's mm-hmm. always interested me. Um, and it, they're so intense. They're really like love affairs, but without any rules or, or anything sort of preventing the intensity from going haywire. And it felt like the stakes were dramatically high. And in some sense, they were. Um, life does matter immensely at that age you know we get we get so cynical and so used to feelings you know megan abbott is the author of the fever thanks for coming in megan oh such a pleasure 
And now it's the spiel. And it's the Antan Twig. Oh, yes, the Antan Twig. The old English word for a three-week period that even the old English didn't know was a word. Of course, the old English didn't even know they were old English, but old English died out somewhere in the mid-12th century, having achieved much, but not this one thing. Even though they developed the concept of a fortnight based on the number 14, they neglected to define a three-week period. So we have done that for them based on the corruption of the number 21 in old English. We created the Antan Twig, a 21 21- period that we use for housekeeping. By the way, the Old English should have known they were Old English because of the extra E after old. All updates of a language throw away unnecessary letters, right? When Americans modify English, current modern English, we take away, say, the U in color. And today's language, even American right now, is being whittled away letter by letter. You don't believe me? OMG. Two corrections. Yesterday, can you believe as recently as yesterday I made a mistake? I chided America in a segment called Mike Chides America. I chided the part of America that's the Consumer Product Safety Council. Actually, they weren't the subject of my chide. It was every American, every American but for the 385 Americans who followed the Consumer Product Safety Commission on Twitter. I was wrong. 385 was the number of people that the CPSC themselves followed. Actually, 27,000 people follow the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Now, that is less than a hundredth of 1% who care about their appliances that just might explode. But it is bigger than the 385 that I cited. Let's think about this for a second, though. The CPSC follows 385 people. It's now up to 387 Number 386 was the gist, by the way. Shouldn't that be more? I am going to chide the CPSC. Shouldn't they be following the feeds of every 99-cent store or every sock sold in every Target or every Sunday morning cartoon licensee who thought it would be a good idea to market Hot Pockets? I take you inside one of their offices. Guys, guys, we're now being followed by consumer protection. We are going to have to table the Voltron Gouda stuffed confections. But you said let the market decide. The Consumer Product Safety Commission is on to us, Lewis. These guys don't stop. Did you see what they did to the Cocentrix candles sold exclusively at Hobby Lobby? Yeah, that's right. I'm talking about batches 1470 through batch 14178 off the market. Did they stop at number 785444, grapefruit and cinnamon? They did not. They also went after pink pepper, beach getaway, southern magnolia, spring banquet, lemon seed and pasta. Lewis, cinnamon embers, Tuscan harvest, they're all gone, bamboo jasmine, they didn't stop there, they went after Parisian garden and roasted pear, and our Gouda stuffed hot pockets are practically molten lava, Lewis, they're lava. Other mistakes, I once referred to Thursday, July 30th. Since when I made this reference, it wasn't 2009, I was wrong. July 30th was not a Thursday this year. July 31st was what I meant. Interestingly, before 2009, the last July 30th that was a Thursday was 1998. So a whole decade went by without a July 30th falling on a Thursday. Also, I'd like to correct the adverb interestingly. That really wasn't that interesting. I mispronounced or just flat out misstated the name of the Guttmacher Institute. I might have said Guttmacher. I might have said Guttmaker. But it is the Guttmacher Institute, meaning in German, a good or important person or someone who demeans the overweight. So those are all the corrections. Those are all the mistakes that we made. Correction, those were not all the mistakes we made. Let me, you know what, let me just read this disclaimer. 
The mistakes on the gist are not limited to the aforementioned corrections. Also, in no way do the aforementioned listing of corrections indicate fault or liability on the part of the gist, its affiliates, the Guttmacher Institute, the nation of Sri Lanka, descendants or heirs, living or dead, or not yet born, of Thai Babylonia, in perpetuity, forevermore, once your twin powers deactivate. All right, let me pause before we get to the lobster. It's coming soon. Let me go to the archive. I love when we do this. Let's play a classic Mike Chides America. This is from May of 1986, and let's see what Mike was chiding America about then. Look, I'm into hands across America. I get it. Most of our problems can be solved by holding hands. And yet we all knew the desert was going to be a problem. But your solution is no good. Symbolic string? It is underwhelming. It's visually unappealing. It's kind of cheating. And if you want something to be symbolic, you can't flat out call it symbolic string. You could have done better, hands across America. The Russians are gaining on us. How is this helping everyone to Wang Chung tonight? And now on to the Lobstar. The listeners and interactors that made the show better or spread the word or in any way brightened our lives. The runner-up Lobstar of this Anten Twig is Brett Small. So let me set the scene. I was talking about Russians and how they were going to ban imports. And I said, are they playing chicken or is it Russian roulette? And Brett Small tweeted us this joke. Thought you missed a chance to say Russian Poulet, but it's spelled, you see how it's spelled? It's spelled almost exactly like roulette. So it's a really good joke. So you're a runner-up lobster. But the main lobster also comes from Twitter, and he didn't even know I was going to name him a lobster. In fact, I don't even think that he knew that we have seen this communication. Siraj Daytu wrote at Alex C. Kaufman, I think Felix, meaning Felix Salmon, had a particularly strong line in there about traffic too. And then Alexander C. Kaufman replied, hey, have you been listening to his new Slate podcast? No, should I? Yeah, you should. That and at Slate Gist. I haven't missed an episode of each yet. Siraj Daytu, daily, Alexander C. Kaufman, indeed daily. And that, Alexander C. Kaufman, for spreading the word, for advocating on behalf of us, gets you the lobster. Hey, Kaufman, you're a lobster. Get your game on, okay? Okay. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcast, was afflicted by an inexplicable syndrome characterized by fits, vomiting, and amending other people's interesting comments by saying, I know, right? Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, was part of a mass outbreak of pee-popping and extra sibilant S's that went away as quickly as it descended on a small Indiana town. You can listen to us in SoundCloud. You can give us a review on iTunes. We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. Our Twitter feed is Slate Gist. For three days now, I've been saying we're on Yo. A lot of people don't know what Yo is. Let me explain it. Okay, I can't really explain it, but it's really simple. You sign up for Yo, you know, you download the app, you put the name podcast in, and as soon as the gist is up, we send you a Yo. That's all you can do in Yo. You hit the button, and it says Yo on someone else's iPhone. Don't overthink it. To sign up for the daily newsletter that will get to your mailbox as soon as the show goes live, it's slate.com slash gist email, and email the gist at slate.com. The gist, a cause of and a solution to all manner of outbreak, contagion, blight, and epidemiological phenomena. There is no known cure, just a frightened and fervid plea, which ends with the phrase, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.